This morning we're beginning a short series on the subject of generosity and money, which will come as no surprise if you were listening to those scripture readings. And we're going to root this in the little word and exhortation in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open up to that small epistle toward the back of the New Testament to chapter 6, starting in verse 17, which is all we'll deal with this morning. Quickly, why do we do this? Why do we talk about this in the life of the church? Because I realize some of you may have just been really disappointed by what I just said. It's a central issue in Christian discipleship and joy. Money is talked a lot about in the scriptures, generally. Uh, Jesus, as it's often noted, talked more about money than he did about heaven or hell or faith or prayer. It was an important subject. And how we handle our money, as we read in Matthew 6, reflects and affects our heart, which is so deeply important. So getting God's perspective on money, which is something that all of us deal with, and following his will will lead us to finding deeper life and joy as people of God. This may be an area where you're excelling and growing. This may be an area where you're stuck in the mud, so to speak. And just to be clear, as the pastor of this church, I don't know anything about what each of you give, um, just to put that on the record. So I'm not speaking directly to you if you think I am. Um, I don't have you in my mind. It's important to know that. Um, So it's important when it comes to discipleship. It's missionally important as well. When the church takes God's acts of generosity and begins to imitate them in our lives, by virtue of his grace working deeply within us, this becomes or makes us more and more a light in our world. Two quick notes on this. One ancient, one more modern. Third, a fourth century Roman emperor Julian, who said, why do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? For it's disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that was his term for Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well, while everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. Fourth century. The Christians took seriously the fact that their Father in heaven was generous and had called them to be the same. More modern, uh, Nicholas Kristof, New York Times, July 2011, writes this, In reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their income to charities, mostly church-related. More important, go to the front lines, at home or abroad, in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. He continues, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way, and it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. When Christians live radically generous lives, we shine the light of God into the world. So this is a missionally important topic. It's also situationally relevant. What do I mean? We live in the most affluent culture and and moment in human history that's ever been known. Materially blessed, deeply materialistic, And so we are awash in abundance, even if we don't feel like it. I'll get to that a bit more in a moment. But in the midst of that, 
It's, it's interesting to me, you know, if Jesus living in a mostly agrarian society where most people were living on subsistence, subsistence farming, spent so much time talking about money 2,000 years ago, if he came back, if he had done his ministry in this culture and context, one wonders if he would have ever talked about anything else, given how unique it is. So we live in abundance, but we struggle with generosity. It's true. The statistics bear this out. I don't normally like statistics, but they're helpful when it comes to this topic. Again and again, year after year, it's shown that American churchgoers give, on average, 2.5% of their income away. This more recently has been noted in contrast to the giving percentage rate during the Great Depression, which was 3.3%, apparently. And self-identified evangelicals, Christoph's New York Times comments aside, those who care, at least by definition, about the gospel and, and matters of personal conversion and transformation, only 9% of them gave more than 10% of their income away in the mid-2000s. So it's a struggle. It's a real issue to wrestle with. And we need to reflect on it together to be challenged in this as a community, not to be afraid, not to shy away from what Jesus talked and taught about. And I hope that as we spend a couple, two to three weeks on this, that it will be helpful to all of us and encouraging because it brings us back again to the generosity of our God. So let's jump in. Verse 17, which reads, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. As for the rich in this present age, most of us are thinking, now I can turn off. I don't have to listen to this. Because nobody thinks of themselves as rich. The federal government's measurement of rich, where the big tax, uh, tax kind of leap happens, is right around, well, in the, in the, the late um, Bush year, it was $400,000. In the current uh, administration, it's around $500,000. But that's what the federal government says is rich, because you jump into the highest tax bracket. But honestly, most of the people who make that much money don't think of themselves as rich, because they're looking up higher above them and seeing people who are on TV who are really rich. So it may be true relative to others in the U.S. that you and I here are not rich, per se, relatively speaking. But let's think about the rest of the world for a moment. Uh, half the world's population lives on less than $3 a day. That's astonishing. I think that would be, what, 3.5 billion people. The average day, day laborer in the U.S. earns $97 a day. And this is staggering. If, this was a statistic from 2018. If you make $32,400 annually, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Think about your lifestyle, my lifestyle for a moment. How many of us walk into a closet full of clothes and say, I've got nothing to wear? That's what rich people do. Open a pantry full of food and say, I've got nothing to eat? That's what rich people do. Upgrade from a perfectly good iPhone 4 to an iPhone 10. That's what rich people do. I struggle with, like, the, 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 the problem is, you know, where do we go out to eat? Do we want Mexican tonight, or do we want to go to an American grill, or do we want, you know, to get some other kind of cuisine? Or which movie should we watch? That can be a struggle. And those are rich people's problems, obviously. We're included, if we're honest, in the words that Paul is addressing here. As for the rich in this present age, because what Paul would have meant in his day is those who had margins, those 
who had something to put away, those who could live beyond day to day, see agricultural season to agricultural season. And again, there weren't that many people back then like that. It was a very small percentage of the population that Paul would have been addressing with these words. But in fact, most of us sitting in this room 2,000 years later fit right within the category that Paul is using. So we want to listen up. And let me say, even if your income levels are, are, are really, really low right now, or maybe even non-existent, perhaps you're in graduate school and you're racking up debt, most likely you're on a trajectory to become part of the top 1% with your first job out of school. And the fact that you have an opportunity to get graduate education puts you probably already in the top 1% in terms of opportunity. And so it is a sign of, our, of, of your relative richness in the world. So we're rich. Some of these insights I've, I've taken from a 2012 sermon series that Andy Stanley did called How to Be Rich for his congregation down in Atlanta. And his point in his whole series was to get people away from the denial that they were rich to just accept the fact that they were and learn how to be good at it. Which in a way is what this text is urging us to do here. So that's what we want to consider. I do also want to say that there is a reality of financial hardship, and that may define some of you in the room. And, and I want you to know that everything I've just said kind of behind us, that we care deeply about you and your needs. And we have, as we'll hear about in our annual meeting today, we have a benevolence fund that is geared towards meeting financial needs for people in our community when they fall into times of hardship. And that's a reality and a possibility. So I want you to know that's okay. That happens to all of us at different times. And we want to be a part of meeting those needs for you in the church. So what does Paul say, and how are we going to uh, tackle this little verse here? He gives two warnings to rich people, two things that they need to watch out for in this text. And I should make one more caveat. Um, being, being rich itself is not a sin. Uh, in fact, just earlier in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, a verse that often gets kind of confused, he says, the love of money is the root of evil. Um, back over, if you, in my Bible I have to flip the page, but... Um, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Having money or possessions in and of itself doesn't make one on the outs with God. There are many examples in the, in the scriptural texts of rich followers of God in the Old Testament and in, clearly in the New. This is here as well. And the very fact that Paul's addressing the rich in this letter suggests that there are rich people in the church, back then even. And Paul's exhorting them to something Beautiful and good. So it's not an impossible combination. At the same time, when we say that, we have to acknowledge that from a biblical perspective, riches are a spiritual liability. They are not a great blessing in one sense. As Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he does that right after the story with that rich, rich young ruler who wouldn't, wasn't able to part with his stuff. So riches are this kind of mixed bag. And we should at least in the church acknowledge the fact that there are liability to, to our spiritual health and not spend ourselves in eagerness to, to gain that which actually can be a real burden and distraction and trap for us. All right, so the first warning that he gives is, is uh, charge them not to be haughty. Charge rich people not to be haughty. The rich are tempted to make this move, to go from I have more to I am better. I have more to I am better. I deserve, perhaps this is the way the thinking goes, I deserve this, I worked hard, I was smarter, I was more gifted. And it may be the fact that, that those of us in this room who are rich have worked hard, 
But we can't really say this, because so much of our present position in life has to do with where we were born, and, and who our, our parents were, and what opportunities that we had given to us and in front of us that we didn't ever have a part to play in creating. So many in this world work so much harder than we ever have. They're more gifted than we are, and yet they'll never have more than we do because this world is marked by sin and evil and injustice that takes that opportunity away for them. And if this internal pressure from I have a lot to I am better isn't bad enough, there's social norms that certainly perpetuate this. Think of what happens when someone who's really wealthy walks into the room and people start to ooh and ah at a board meeting or at a committee meeting or et cetera. Just this last, uh, last fall, my, my sister and her family were here because my, my nephew is a, a, a junior at MIT and they were eating at Flower Bakery. I think I mentioned this before. And they were sitting just two tables away from Jeff Bezos, who's the richest guy in the world. And, uh, and when they came home and told me, I mean, my heart kind of fluttered, like, wow, that's amazing, and it's wrong. He's just a guy. Just because he has billions of dollars doesn't make him any better or more important than anyone else. And yet we all have that kind of reaction. So Paul says, don't be haughty. The rich are tempted to be haughty and to be proud. But he warns them not to go down this path. And he mentions God in a moment. We'll get to this in a second. He says, God is the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So therefore, the solution to being haughty for the rich is no matter how much we have, is gratitude to the giver of all things. The one who richly provides. It's seeing that everything that we have, including the breath in our lungs, the brains in our head, the opportunities that we didn't create, are gifts from a creator that has been given to us. And to retain a heart of gratitude and thankfulness to him. The second warning is not just not to be haughty, but it's next, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The second major danger with wealth is we begin to trust in it and to lean into it and to find our security from it. Proverbs 18.11, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. The rich man is trusting in wealth for security, stability, for life itself. Trusting in what he can see and moving hope away from the God that he cannot see. In that passage we read earlier from Job, Job says, look, if I've made gold my trust or have called fine gold my confidence, if I've rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, you know, if I'd started to place my hope in riches, then he says, then I would have been false to God above. That's how he concludes that little reading we did. When we begin to shift our hope from the God of heaven and earth who provides everything and has provided everything that we have, some things take place in us. Greediness can set in to the human heart. There's always this need to get more. No amount is enough. I always need a bit more than I already have. That breeds a kind of discontentment and a getting onto the hamster wheel and trying to keep up with the Joneses and all the other things that go on. And it leads to a deeply, a deep, affirm, a deep um, blessing of our natural disposition to self-centeredness. You look at the passage in Luke 12 when that rich man gets a big crop. Do you remember that story? And, and, he, and he's like, look, I have so much. I've had such a great crop. I need to build bigger barns and store up in my, my wealth, and then I can eat and drink and be merry. It's all about him. It's I, 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 I. And then when you get to the end, Jesus and his life is taken, Jesus says, you know, this was a fool. And such it is with those who uh, 
um, hoard up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. We set our hope in our wealth, in our stuff, we'll start to get greedier and greedier and more and more self-centered and blinded to the needs around us. Another interesting thing happens when we begin to kind of put our hope in our, in our money is our percentage of giving tends to go down. This is counterintuitive. You would think that as we get more, we will become more generous. But the statistics continually tell a different story, which is that those who have less are much more prone to give. There are statistics that back this up. And those, as we gain our, in, as our income increases, we begin to give a smaller and smaller percentage of what we receive away. Those who make more in this country, this was last year's statistic, than $75,000 a year, of that group, only 1% donated more than 10% of their income last year. And perhaps you've had the same experience that I did when I was in high school and took a missions trip to Tijuana, Mexico, and saw poverty that I'd never encountered before and, and was just blown away at the generosity and joy of the families and kids that I encountered. I know that's cliched in some way, but it's true. I'd never seen anything like that, and it made a deep impression upon me as a teenager. We set our hope on this stuff, the cares of this world, the riches of this life, that's the parable of the sower. It begins to just grab us and take our hands from being open to, to being more clenched and holding on. Not only has that effect on our hearts, but it also, it's really foolish. As Paul says here, not to set their hopes on what? On the uncertainty of riches. They're uncertain. Proverbs 23, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I wonder how many people in the dot-com bust in the late 90s would have been blessed by reading that verse. Wealth just blew up and then it just vanished in a moment. It's like building and putting our hope in riches is like building our house on the sand. It's not stable. It can be knocked over at any moment. As we read in Psalm 52, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. He was wiped away like a breath. So we're not to place our trust here. And here's the remedy for the second warning about not putting our trust or our hope on the uncertainty of riches. But as the verse finishes, but on God, who what? Richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's an amazing description of God. Not this angry tyrant or master up above, but a God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Put our hope on him. How does 1 Timothy begin, this letter? If, you've got, if you're there, just turn back with me to chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul keeps coming back to this hope. This is, God is our hope. And the God who is our hope is a God who is not stingy and not holding back, but a God who has given himself in the deepest way possible through his Son to richly provide us with everything 
to actually enjoy. God is wanting us to enjoy and to celebrate. We, we talk about being a community that values partying in the best sense of the word. It's a feasting, a celebration of the God who has done so much good for us that he's changed our lives. And we're always saying, God, how can you be so good to love somebody like me? How can you be so good to pour out your blessings upon somebody like me? That I get to enjoy what you've given to me. God is the provider. It's interesting, when um, Jesus can, you know, talks about where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, as we read. And don't build up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But rather, he says, build up your treasures in heaven. Just after that, and he says, you can't serve both God and money. That's a well-known passage. What comes right after that in, Mark, in Matthew 6? Don't be anxious. It's not an accident that those things are connected in Matthew 6. What is it that causes us to place our hope on riches? It's that we start to get anxious about our own needs. What is it that frees us from being anxious about our own needs? It's seeing the God of heaven and earth who provides everything for us to richly enjoy. And you might be sitting and thinking, well, look, my life, you don't know my life. And, and you're right, I don't know everybody's life here. But one thing I do know, and there are real struggles in that that I don't want to wash over and suggest aren't real. But one thing I do know is when we want to ask the question, has God provided for me? When you're wondering that question, where do you look? You look to the cross. You don't look, and this is really important, we don't look at our circumstances first. Because our circumstances will ebb and flow. There will be feast years and famine years. There will be good years, there will be hard years. That's just the reality of life in a broken world. But where is it that the church looks Where is it that those who have been rescued by God look? We look to the rescue in Jesus. And when we see in that cross and resurrection of Jesus that God has provided for us in a way that far surpasses the greatest riches that even Jeff Bezos enjoys, then we're free. We're free to sit in his presence, to put our hope in him, to let go of the burden and the grip that riches have on our hearts, and to begin then in response to his abundant provision. And, and I should say, joyfully, to begin to imitate his generosity. This God who gives radically and abundantly. What then shall we say to these things, Paul says, in the midst of suffering and struggle, these famous words from Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us a little bit? No. All things. How will he not do this? This is our heritage. This is our inheritance. This is our liberation and our freedom as followers of Jesus. It is that we have been rescued and redeemed by a God whom we don't deserve. And every single thing that we have is a gift from his hand. Worship him. Praise him. Trust him. I guarantee you when you're laying on your deathbed, if you're conscious and able to think in that moment, you will not be relying upon your riches. They will mean nothing to you and to me. But you will be relying upon your God who is ready to receive you and to welcome you home. As for the rich in this present world, don't be haughty. Don't set your hope on those things. But put it on God who richly provides everything for us to enjoy. Next week we'll come back and look more at what it means to begin to model, as Paul goes into verse 18, the God of generosity in our lives. Let's pray.